Thank you for joining us today for this life-changing message from River of Life. If you are ever in our area, we would love for you to join us. For more information, visit us at rolcrawfordville.com. That's rolcrawfordville.com. Or download our app in the App Store under ROL Crawfordville. Now, let's join Derek Gray as he teaches from the Word of God. Welcome, everyone, to uh, our Wednesday night Bible study here at River of Life. Um, if you are visiting, uh, we have been going through, for the past year, the study on the Mount. That's the study on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, this is going to go good, I think, tonight. Um, and as you can tell by the title, uh, tonight we come to the end of that uh, study. Now, this is kind of bittersweet. Um, I don't know about you, but I have learned a ton from this, and it has made a difference in my life. I, uh, I said on Sunday, and I can honestly say as I stand here at the end of this study, I've never been more acutely aware of how far I fall short of the glory of God and how much I need a Savior. Uh, at the same time, I've never been more assured that he is my Savior. So if, if, if nothing else, uh, it was an incredible uh, benefit to, uh, uh, to me. So we're going to be moving on. We've got two more verses to cover, and we'll get to these in just a second. So we'll cover these, and at the end tonight, we'll talk a little bit uh, about where we're going to go uh, over the next uh, few weeks. So uh, end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, uh, verses 28 and 29. Now last week we looked at the last words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And tonight, the last two verses, um, and sometimes people skip them, but I think that's a mistake because these are uh, some commentary that Matthew himself adds uh, when he records this. He adds this commentary, and he says this, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Now, I thought I would start tonight. Over the past year, I've read at least two books on the Sermon on the Mount. I've listened to numerous sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. I've read all kind of articles and commentaries on the Sermon on the Mount. And as you can imagine, I've come across a lot of quotes. And I've used a lot of them uh, over the past year in our, in our different uh, studies. But there's a lot of them I didn't use. I just, they, they just never fit or anything like that. And I've just kind of kept them to the side. And so I thought I would bring out a few of those quotes tonight from some famous people. I've given you a lot of quotes from theologians and pastors and people like that. But I thought I'd give you <clears throat> some quotes tonight from uh, just some uh, more, more famous uh, uh, people. Uh, the first one I want to start with is John Adams, who was our second president. <clears throat> and he said this, The Ten Commandments, and you're going to notice something similar about all these quotes. He says, The Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount contain my religion. Uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt, which was also a, a president, said this, No greater blessing could come to our land today than a revival of the spirit of religion. I doubt if there's any problem in the world today that would not find a happy solution if approached in the spirit of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Harry Truman, also another president, said this, I don't believe there's a problem in this country or this world which could not be settled if approached through the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. 
uh, William Jennings Bryan, who was a well-known lawyer, ran for president a couple times, said this, If we desire rules to govern our spiritual development, we should turn back to the Sermon on the Mount. Mahatma Gandhi said this, If I had to face only the Sermon on the Mount and my own interpretation of it, I would not hesitate to say that, oh yes, I am a Christian. And then I'll give the last word to Frank Sinatra. He said this, I believe that God knows what each of us wants and needs. It's not necessary for us to make it to church on Sunday to reach him. You can find him any place. And if that sounds heretical, my source is pretty good. The Sermon on the Mount. Now, one of the things that, that jumped out at me over the last year as I as I read different things about this sermon, is how much the Sermon on the Mount is universally uh, admired. I don't care if it's ex-presidents. I don't care if it's Indian gurus, uh, famous singers. It doesn't seem to matter. Everybody seems to admire the Sermon on the Mount. And what they do is they look at it and they think, man, these are, these are some wonderful ethics, some, some great moral principles, some rules to live by, those kind of things. And, and everybody just praises it. Um, even other religions look at it and say, man, that's, that's a great sermon. But what you'll notice about that is they all see it as some sort of social manifesto. They all think, you know, if we could just live by these rules... If every human would just, just kind of set up, you know, put the Sermon on the Mount on their wall and try to use that as how we treat one another, this would all be a, a better world to live in. Now, here's the thing. <clears throat> if you read the Sermon on the Mount and that's what you came away with, you completely missed it. If you read the Sermon on the Mount and you really walk away from that thinking that that's a great set of rules to live by, you have completely missed it. In fact, how in the world do you read the Sermon on the Mount and you come to that verse right there, be perfect, and you think, yeah, that sounds good. I'll just, I'll put that on my wall. Really? How do you read stuff like that and walk away and actually think you can live it? Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, Jesus is not merely, merely telling people how to live because the Sermon on the Mount is infinitely more impossible to practice than the law of Moses. Right? I mean, what we talk about, he kept raising the bar, raising the bar, raising the bar. Why would you walk away? They couldn't keep the, the law of Moses as it was. Who in the world thinks they can actually keep the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, Martin Lord Jones goes on and says this, anyone who thinks he can live the Christian life himself is proclaiming that he's not a Christian. There, there's something about somebody that reads the Sermon on the Mount and walks away and says, I can do those things. That tells you something about that person. Instead of walking away thinking, man, I am undone. I, I can't do these things. I, I, I fall short. I need a Savior you walk away thinking, yeah, I think I can pull that off. There's probably something wrong with you spiritually. Now, the question is, how do these people make such a mistake? How is it that you read the Sermon on the Mount and you don't get the fact that he's telling you you can't do it? That's the whole point of it. How do they do that? Well, I'll give you one quick quote from the another man that we can listen to, which is the Apostle Paul. And he said this, the natural man does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So, so someone without the Spirit that reads the Sermon on the Mount is not going to come away with it with the same meanings and the same things that somebody that has the Spirit does. 
But here's something else I wanted you to notice. Did you notice in all those quotes that they never mention Jesus? In all those quotes, they, they come to the sermon and they think, wow, what a, what a great set of ethics. What a great set of principles. What, a, what, a, what great morality and rules to live by. And they never mention Jesus. You see, the fact is, for the natural man, that's what we do. We're all looking for, show me what I need to do, and I'll go do that and earn my way into heaven. And so they come in there, and they just see rules, 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 and they don't see the man that speaks them. They separate the, the teachings from the teacher, and that is where they go wrong. You see, you got to go, when you read the Sermon on the Mount, you got to go beyond the words to the one thing that matters more than the words, and that is the teacher himself. Let me say that again. When you come to the Sermon on the Mount, you got to go beyond the words to the man that's speaking those words because he matters more. Martin Lloyd-Jones again said this, With all other teachers the world has ever known, the important thing is the teaching. We, we see that tonight, right? We're sitting here tonight, and I'm, I'm doing our final lesson. I'm teaching you on the Sermon on the Mount. I'm not important. I'm not important at all. What's important tonight is the words or the word, right? That's what's important, not me. But with the Sermon on the Mount, the teacher is more important than the words. The teacher is more important than the words. He showed us that, didn't he, in Matthew seven twenty-two to 23? He said, on that day, many will say to me, Lord... Didn't we prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name? And he said, you didn't know me. I was more important than those things. You missed it. That's what we said. Oswald Chambers says this, if Jesus is only a teacher, then all he can do is tantalize us by erecting a standard we cannot meet. The Sermon on the Mount is not a set of principles to be obeyed. It's not some unattainable goal. It is a statement of what will happen in me when Jesus Christ has changed my nature by putting His nature in me. And Jesus Christ is the only one who can fulfill the Sermon on the Mount. So if you come to the Sermon on the Mount and all you see is the words, you've completely missed it. What we need is the man. Because the only way we ever come close to following any of those things, if He is inside of us, is he, it's His grace that is empowering us. You see, in the end... And it's completely appropriate of what we're doing tonight. In the end, the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount, and by the way, the whole point of the Bible is to bring us to Him. That's the whole point of the Bible. Romans eleven thirty six says this, from Him, through Him, to Him is everything. It's all created for Him. It all exists for Him. Everything is for Jesus. It's all about Jesus. All the promises of God are in Him. So everything we do is to bring us to Him. So I said this a couple weeks ago, and I'll say it again. Listen, if you love His words and you don't love Him, you miss first base. If you love His words but you don't love Him, you miss first base. If you build your life on His words but you don't build your life on Him, then you've just built your house on the sand. If you go through life and you and it's all about your righteousness and I'm going to do my best to try to attain all these things, at the end of the day, he just says, depart from me. I never knew you. You never had a relationship with me. we got to remember, as wonderful as his word is, as wonderful as the Sermon on the Mount is, as wonderful as his commands are, at the end of the day, it's all about him first and foremost. So it's entirely appropriate tonight 
that we finish up this sermon, this series on the Sermon on the Mount by focusing once again on the teacher himself. And that's what we're going to do. Now, let me ask a, a quick question. Why should I care about this sermon more than any other? At the end of the day, why should I listen to it? Why should I follow it? Why should I seek to obey it or fulfill any of its commands? Why should I believe it? Why should I care about this sermon as opposed to thousands upon thousands upon thousands of other sermons? And the answer to that is obvious, right? It's because of him. It's because of the person who preached this sermon, the, pe- the person who taught this sermon. You see, if you and I have doubts about Jesus... If we have doubts that he really is who he says he is, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, if we doubt that, then at the end of the day, we're just going to see that sermon the way John Adams saw it, the way Franklin Roosevelt saw it, the way Truman saw it. It's just a series of rules. And if we all live by those rules, we'll we'll all get along. It'll, It'll completely change your attitude toward this sermon. And again, we'll just see Jesus as another teacher. Listen, there's always teachers. You can go back through history and Aristotle and Plato and Socrates and and Schweitzer and Locke and all these philosophers, and they're all confident and they're all you know speaking these deep truths and everything. If you just if, if that's how you see Jesus, that's how you'll just see his sermon. It's just a, an, another line of ethics and principles and rules. But let me tell you, and if we see it that way. We'll be just like those men. We'll think, I gotta follow that. I gotta do that. I've gotta aspire to that. I've gotta believe that. But folks, listen to me. If he is who he says he is, if Jesus is who he says he is, that changes everything. Then the words he speaks come with a power and they come with an authority unlike any other. That's a decision that you and I have to make. And by the way, here's where the comment at the end of Matthew becomes important. Because the comment at the end of Matthew lets us see the reaction of those who were there on that day. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being the, uh, one of the ones on that day that, that you hear that this, this teacher is going to be in Galilee and, and man, they were, all the crowds are rushing out of the towns and they're all heading to this this location to go hear this person preach. By the way, it's a carpenter from Nazareth. Somewhere around 30 years old. As, as far as we know, up to 30 years old, he's just a normal man living a normal life. And all of a sudden, this ministry breaks out and everybody's hearing about him. And here is his, his first big sermon. He's going to preach a sermon. This ordinary carpenter. And you get there that day and everybody's trying to catch a glimpse of him. And finally, you see him. And, and, and let me just say this. I don't know what it is about movies and television series and stuff, but have you ever noticed Jesus always stands out? You ever notice that? He's always the tall one. I think they find the tall guy and make him Jesus, and all the, all the, you know, his disciples are shorter than him. And he's always good looking. He always just, man, that guy, look at him. He looks like the Son of God. But you know, Isaiah says the opposite, said there was nothing about him physically that would have drawn you to him. Nothing. It wasn't that he looked the part. He didn't look the part. Just looked like a normal guy. And I'm sure when we saw him on that day, we just said, him? That's, that's him? And so I'm sure they weren't really expecting anything. And all of a sudden, he opens his mouth. 
And they hear things coming out of his mouth that they've never heard before in their entire life. They've never heard their rabbis say anything like this. Their, their scribes say, their Pharisees. They've never heard anything like this. And the question is, how did they see him? They were eyewitnesses to it. Did they think he was crazy? Did they see him as a lunatic? Did, did they see him as one who was, who was possessed by the devil? How did they see him on day, that day? And this is what Matthew says. When he finished, it says they were astonished. That word, by the way, in the Greek, means to ha- the root word means to have the breath knocked out of you. That somebody hits you so hard, it knocks the breath out of you. That's what that word means. They were astonished. I was trying to think this week, have I ever been astonished? And I couldn't think of it. Maybe you have. But have I ever been someplace that I saw something or I heard something or I experienced something that literally took my breath away? Um, and, and I couldn't really think of anything. But it says that's what they experienced on that day. They were astonished. It literally took their breath away. Now, what was it about that day? What was it about that man, that, cop, that, that carpenter from Nazareth? What was it about his words? What was it about his sermon that would take their breath away? Well, Matthew told us, it says this, because he was teaching them as one who had authority. Now, notice the negative, not as their scribes. So when he says that he was teaching as one who had authority, he gives us uh, something to compare it to, not like those guys. He taught different from them. So if we want to know what, what they saw that day, what they felt that day, we have to kind of look at their scribes to, to figure that out. Now, we've talked about this before in some of our previous lessons, but scribes were, were lawyers. In fact, sometimes in the Gospels, you'll even hear, uh, you'll see them called lawyers. And they were called lawyers because that's what they were. They were experts in the Jewish law. Now, they were experts in the Scripture but they were also experts in all the rules and the regulations that the Jews uh, had added to the law over this year. They were very educated men. They spent years and years uh, in these schools under the feet of, of rabbis. They, were, they, were, they could copy Scripture. They could edit the rabbinical writings. Uh, they were teachers. But the main thing they did is they were lawyers. And what that means, it's no different from today. If you had a, in that day, if you had a question, just like today, you've got a question today about maybe what's legal uh, in a certain civil thing or what's legal maybe in a land dispute, you go hire a lawyer. Well, they did the same thing. If you, if you wanted, and I, I know this sounds stupid, but let's just say, I wonder on a Sabbath, can I move a lamp from one side of the room to the other? Is that allowed? If you wanted the answer to that question, you go talk to a, a scribe. You talk to a lawyer, and they would look in the law, and they would give you uh, an answer. And we have tons of examples of their writings and their rulings in a, in a book called the Jewish Talmud, which is a record of all these different rabbinical writings. So you can go all the way back to Jesus' day and see those, uh, see those examples. And one of the things you notice about them is they constantly quote other people. In other words, they, if, they, if they make a ruling, they never make it on their own. In fact, they would never give a ruling. They would never have an idea without saying, well, Rabbi so-and-so said this. Or Rabbi so-and-so, they would all, everybody with me, they would always base what they say on somebody else. Now, let me say, that's no different today. 
right? If you, you watch the, the lawyer shows and stuff on TV or you know some lawyers, you don't go into a courtroom and say, you know what, I think this is what we ought to do. You just don't make it up. What do they do? They go in there and they cite case law. They say, well, uh, you know, the Supreme Court said in this ruling in 1958, you know, uh, U.S. versus Jones, and, and then they build on that, right? Th- that's what lawyers still So that's been going on for 2,000 years. And I'm sure when the people sat down on that day on that mountain, that's what they'd heard their whole life. That's what they'd heard rabbis quote rabbis and scribes quote scribes, and it went on and on and on. That's what they expected from Jesus, and he never does it, not one time. Not once in his sermon does he ever base anything he says on what somebody else has says. Now, listen, his teachings are original, things they've never heard before. And when he teaches, he speaks with confidence and certainty and assurity. In fact, you can hear it in every word he speaks. The first words out of his mouth, you'll remember in Matthew 5, 3, he just said this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. There's no, there's no supposition in that. There's no possibility in that. There's maybe it might happen. There's no doubt. There's just absolute confidence that what he is saying is truth. Absolute truth. Now, here's the thing. A lot of people can pull that off. Okay? A lot of people can pull that off. There's a lot of people, I know some of them, that they'll, they can talk to you and you'll just think, I guess he knows what he's talking about because he sure is. Everybody with me? He's, man, people can pull that off. And Jesus certainly had that. But let me tell you, what makes this sermon different and what makes his authority different is not just the way he handled himself. What made it different is what he said about himself. I, I want to go back real quickly and show you just a few things that Jesus said through here. You remember back in Matthew 5, 21 to 48, all of the uh, I say to you sayings, right? We, we covered this in detail over several weeks. But Jesus said, you've heard it said of old. You've heard from your rabbis, from, your, from the Pharisees, from the scribes. You've heard it said over and over that this is what the law means. But I say to you, but I say to you, but I say to you. You got to remember what we talked about. That whole point of that was that the people had always thought the law was about the outside. As long as you don't commit the act of murder, as long as you don't commit the physical act of adultery, they had diluted the law down. They had lowered the bar so they could reach it. And Jesus comes along and says, no, it's, it's about more than that. He, he corrects. In fact, he doesn't hesitate to correct them and say, you're wrong. I'm right. And in doing that, he's basically saying, I alone have the authority to tell you what it means. It's no, listen, it's very interesting, and we didn't go into this a lot, but it's very interesting. You know, some, I don't know, what, 1,500 years before, a man named Moses goes up on a mountain and gets the law. 1,500 years later, a man named Jesus walks up a mountain and interprets the law. You see, what he's saying is, I am the lawgiver. I'm the lawgiver. I'm here. I'm here to tell you. I mean, what he's saying there is unbelievable. When he says, I say to you, he says, I have that authority to, to do that. He says other similar things. Matthew seven twenty four to 25, he said this, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. He doesn't say everyone who hears God's words. 
will be like a man who built his house. He doesn't say everyone who hears the Holy Scriptures. He doesn't say everyone who hears the law of Moses. No, he says everyone who hears me. Me. Because my words are God's words. My words are the Holy Scriptures. I mean, he's setting himself up. Everything he says is just exuding this authority. He says it in Matthew 5, 11, and 12. Listen to this. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on what? On my account. He doesn't say, blessed are you when they do that on God's account. Blessed are you when you do that, they do that because of your obedience. No, he said, blessed are you when they do that because you're aligned with me. You're in a relationship with me. You're following me. I mean, that's an incredible statement. Here's another one that we miss sometimes, Matthew 5, 17. Notice what he says, Do not think that I have come. Do not think that I have come. Did you notice what he said right there? He doesn't say, I was born. He doesn't say, I was given. He says, I am come. You see, he's, he's speaking of his life and his existence as being completely different from anybody else. He's basically saying, I've come from somewhere else to here. Are you with me? I'm come. Where does he come from? Well, he's come from heaven. He's come from the Father. He's come from eternity. You see, the Old Testament said, one is going to come. And he said, here I am. I'm here. I'm the one. Do you see the foolishness of someone who would read this sermon and walk away and think, wow, that's a good set of rules to live by, and completely miss the teacher who's teaching them, completely miss what this man is saying? See, this is no human teacher. This is no, no, no great man. This is the Son of God claiming to be the Son of God. He says this in Matthew five seventeen again, I am come to fulfill. Let's read that. Do not think I have come to abolish the law, do away with the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Two very important things about how Jesus fulfilled the law. He did it two ways. The first way he fulfilled the law was by keeping it perfectly. When Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law, what he says is, I'm going to do what nobody before me has ever done, and what nobody after me will ever do. I'm going to keep the law perfectly. I'm going to live a sinless life, both inside and outside. I will fulfill that part of the law. This is why Paul says in Philippians 3, 9, that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but a, a righteousness which is through faith in Christ. You see, when we believe in Christ, he had to live a perfect life. And when we put our faith in him, his perfection, his righteousness is credited to us. That's, that was part of the law. The law required you to keep it perfectly to get into heaven. And so we get credit for that because he did that part of the law. The second thing he did, though, is the law had another requirement. Not only did it require you to be perfect, it also required that if you failed, there had to be an atonement. There had to be a blood sacrifice. And Jesus fulfilled that part of the law when he bore the punishment that the law requires. So anybody who sinned against God has transgressed the law Christ is going to pay their penalty for them. 
First John 2, 2 says it this way, He is the propitiation, which basically means the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the world. You see why, why Paul can say in Galatians 3, 24, the law was our guardian until Christ came. When Christ came, he fulfills the law. We don't need it anymore in that sense. Romans 10, 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who uh, believes. But by the way, he fulfills the prophets also. It's the prophets who says one is coming. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. And here he is. He is the fulfillment. He is the Messiah. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. One more thing he says in Matthew seven twenty one: Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. That is an incredible statement. This guy is a carpenter from Nazareth. A carpenter from Nazareth. And he stands on that mountain on that day. And he does not hesitate for a second to ascribe to himself the term that is used for Jehovah God. One day they'll say to me, Lord, Lord. See, he is the Lord. He is Jehovah. Martin Lloyd-Jones again says, The one who sat on the mountain on that day to teach will one day sit on the throne of his glory and judge the world. That carpenter from Nazareth. Is it any wonder... And Matthew says, and when he finished, they had the breath knocked out of them. They could not believe the things that this man was saying. And they couldn't believe this man. Now, the question tonight is, what about you and I? What about you and I? What is our reaction to the teacher? That's what it comes down to. You know, I'm, I, I, it's, it's been a great year. And I have so much enjoyed teaching it. And, I, and, I've, and I've heard your comments. I hope you've enjoyed listening and learning, but at the end of the day, it's about Him. It's about, do we have a relationship with Him? What do we think about Him? Is He the Lord of our life? Have we given everything to Him? Have we committed everything to Him? I want to close this lesson with one of my favorite quotes of all time by C.S. Lewis, and I've used this several times, um, but, but he says it better than I can. He said this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing that we must not say. You see, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would never be a great moral teacher. He's either a lunatic on, 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 on the level with a man who thinks he's a poached egg, or else he is the devil of hell. You got to make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or he's a madman or something else. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and you can call him Lord and God. But do not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. I've often thought about this. We're hearing this sermon on that day, and you've got to make a decision. Either that man is crazy, that man is demonic, or that man is who he says he is. Those people on that day didn't think he was crazy. 
They didn't seem as a lunatic. They certainly didn't seem they were astonished at what they heard. Let's pray for a moment. Father, Lord, we love you. We thank you. We appreciate the the past year. We appreciate just what you've done through your word. I appreciate what you've done in my life and, and what you've done in others' lives. And Father, we just bless you and honor you. We thank you, Jesus, for being our Savior. We thank you, uh, not just for preaching this sermon, but God, for living that sermon, for, 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 for living that perfect, sinless life, so that by faith you, we could have that credited to us. And after you lived that perfect, sinless life, you died on a cross, a, a spotless lamb for our sins. You fulfilled the law. You fulfilled the prophets. And God, you gave everything for that. You gave everything for that. And we thank you. We give you honor and we give you praise and we give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to this message from River of Life. If this message has touched you today or if you need someone to pray with, please contact us at 850 850- 926-1200 or email us at info at rolcrawfordville.com We also want to encourage you to visit us this Sunday morning at 10.30am in Crawfordville. Please visit us online at rolcrawfordville.com for more information and directions.